0: This is Local Color, distributed by Your Public Studios, a podcast dedicated to the artists, entrepreneurs, and social innovators using their talents to make Baltimore and the DMV a better place. I'm your host, Jason V, and on the show today, A'Lelia Bundles. A'Lelia is a journalist and award-winning biographer. In 2001, A'Lelia wrote a biography about her great-great-grandmother, American icon, Madam C.J. Walker. That biography was later turned into a Netflix series starring Octavia Spencer. A'Lelia thought she was done telling her ancestor story, but now she's honoring the great Walker in a different but familiar way, as brand historian for a line of hair care products. For A'Lelia Bundles, no one would have questioned it if she decided to get into the hair care business. After all, it's in her blood and not just on her mother's side. Her father's side of the family also saw incredible success in the hair care business. As we mentioned, her great-great-grandmother is Madam C.J. Walker, America's first self-made female black millionaire, who made her fortune selling cosmetics and hair care products to black women in the late 19th and early 20th century. However, A'Lelia had a different calling. She became a writer and journalist and spent 30 years in the media industry reporting on stories that were important to the black community and gave visibility to our problems. As she rose through the ranks and became a media executive and even during her school years, A'Lelia rarely mentioned she was essentially black royalty. She wanted to establish her own legacy, not one given to her because of her name. A'Lelia's story starts in the Midwest. Indianapolis, to be exact. It's where she was raised. I asked if her parents demanded she follow in their footsteps or were they okay with her following her own path?
1: You know, I am really fortunate that my parents wanted me to do my own thing. Um, And the most important thing was being a good student. Uh, And what I did, what I did was to model myself in some ways without actually knowing it. After them as leaders in the community, that was really what was most important. And we really did not sit around the dinner table talking about Madam C. J. Walker. I, I sort of saw my parents in action. I would go with my mom to her office from time to time, and see her in you know being a boss, but being a boss who really had a really positive relationship with the other people, whether it was the ladies in the factory or the elevator operator or the secretaries in the office. So that was what I saw being modeled. I saw my dad um, being a leader in the community. And, you know, that was what was really important. And I, my passion, while my parents were business executives, my passion was writing. And I worked for the school newspaper in junior high school and really followed that. I learned later that my dad had been one of the first Black graduates uh, at Indiana University School of Journalism, but there had not been doors open for him uh, in the late 40s and early 50s. And so he did not become a journalist. He did for a little while. He did some stringing for Jed and the Pittsburgh Courier. But without knowing it, I was in some ways you know, following a path that he had really pioneered.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so I, t- I, take it then when you realize that you kind of had that journalistic bug and in integrity inside you, when you approached your parents and told them, Hey, I don't want to be a business executive. I want to be a journalist. Were they pretty receptive to that? Or did they still say like, Hey, Alilia, maybe it would be best if you just continued the family tradition because it's, it's been a proven successful track.
1: They never said it to me. They never said you should follow in in our footsteps. That that was just never a conversation. I was just um, so bitten by the writing bug that I that's what I was doing. I mean, on summer vacations, we often went to hair shows with my dad. Uh, and sometimes as a little girl, I was a model in those hair shows. But there was never anybody trying to push me in that direction. I mean, I worked in my dad's office and I filed the uh, order forms from beauty supply places during the summers. So I was familiar with it. When we went on vacation, we always had dinner with like the black owned beauty supply family, but there was never any pressure for me to, um, to be in the business. I was familiar with it, but they, they really wanted to encourage me to do my thing, to do, to follow my passion and to be a good student and to be good at what I did. That was really the most important message from them.
0: Was there ever the concept or idea of of Black excellence when you were growing up? Or is that something more of like a recent invention?
1: Oh, no, it was very much a part of my childhood and of my upbringing. You know, my parents were born in the late 1920s. They were children of the Depression. And while my mother's family was more prosperous than my dad's family, they both had a strong work ethic and a, you know, great belief in education. Uh, My mother's father and grandparents, um, actually my mother's parents and grandparents on her father's side had all gone to college. Um, And they were, you know, they, my great grandfather had been valedictorian of his class at Lincoln University in the 1880s. So that was very much a part of who my family was so it, the idea of, of excellence was very much surrounding me and then I would see my mother's friends um she was in a social club and they were all working mothers, and many school teachers, um, but they also knew how to have a good time. My dad's <laughs> friends from Indiana University they you know were for the most part men who had been in World War II or the Korean War they were, integrating indiana university they always believed that they were supposed to be very good and they had to as we know be twice as good so that was that was very much a part of my my upbringing you know of course in in one's extended family and in one's extended community there are always folks who are struggling and so that was also part of what i saw it wasn't a you know an elitism in the way that you don't think you think that you're better than others but that you you know, really do see it's important for you to be good and it's important for you to give back.
0: Yeah. Based off what you were saying earlier about how you saw how the business owners in your family treated the employees, uh, as you said, it, it, it they weren't really trying to raise you or, or train you to be a, a boss per se. It sounded more like they wanted you to see what a good leader looks like and how when you are good to people that do for you, they will in turn be good to you and do for you in return.
1: Yeah, um, I, very much so.
0: So the final question that I have, and I know that I didn't, I didn't write these down, but uh, just you okay. speaking of it reminded me uh, a few years ago, I had bought my mom a book um, and it was about a, the upper echelon of, of like the black population called Negro land. Are you familiar with that?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: So would you say that your family was a part of that cohort or was that something that was a little bit more removed?
1: I am very familiar with Negro land. And interestingly, the uh, author is writing about Chicago in the early 1950s, uh, Margot Jefferson, and she's a year or two older than I am. And we actually lived in that same neighborhood when I was born in Chicago in 1952. So some of the people she mentions and the neighborhood that she mentions um, was part of the neighborhood where I was born. And some of, and some of the experiences that she had um, mirrored some of my experiences. And at the same time, it was really different. Uh, in Chicago, in the Hyde Park area, and she went to the lab school at uh, University of Chicago, that was a particular kind of Black middle-class experience in a large city. I grew up in Indianapolis uh, in a suburb that was black and that was right outside of the city. But I went to predominantly white schools. My elementary, when I started my elementary school, there were 12 black kids in the whole school. We, the neighborhood where we lived was all black, all new houses fathers were veterans of World War II and the Korean War. Most of the mothers were working mothers, many school teachers, but some like my mother who were executives. Then in junior high school, there were there were more a few more Black folks, but in high school, in a large public high school, um, it was four or 5% Black. So I had an experience um, where we were integrating the schools, but I also was in involved in leadership roles as vice president of student council co-editor of the newspaper on the honor roll so my experience is different from negro land but it is a, an experience that i'm very familiar with
0: so you talked about uh your time attending public schools and the high schools and and once you finished high school you went to uh, radcliffe college which is the sister school for for harvard college um in doing my research for this uh, interview and researching Radcliffe College, um, students had commented on how they felt a little more disadvantaged at Radcliffe as opposed to, uh, to Harvard. Some would characterize it as separate but equal. Uh, but as somebody who attended Radcliffe, what was your experience like? And do you feel like you had probably maybe a different experience because of the family that you came from?
1: You know, that's a that's a really interesting question and, and a lot to unpack because I think it depends on the era when you attended Harvard and Radcliffe. So when I arrived in Cambridge in 1970, the dorms were co-ed. The classes had been co-ed really since World War II. So Radcliffe was different from Barnard, for instance, which was really separate from Columbia, different from Wellesley, um, different even from Jackson um, so it so my experience was very much a co-ed experience. And, you know, the interesting thing is that now Harvard and Radcliffe are entirely merged. Then it was sort of a merger, non-merger because Radcliffe still had its own endowment. But all of the classes were were together. The dorms were um co-ed at that point. And really, <laughs> the truth is, it was harder to get in as a woman. Than it was as a man because the ratio was four men to every one woman. So there wow. were like only 300 women in my class, about 30 or so of us were Black. And I would say that what was more characteristic of my era is that we were the first, you know, sort of significant cohort of African American students. We were the second class. Admitted after the assassination of Martin Luther King, so where there had been about a dozen, you know, black girls in my class the year before, there were thirty some of us uh, by that point. By the time I got there, so it was real, and you know, there at that point there was a, a critical mass of black students in the Boston area. So it was kind of a really interesting time to be there, and I didn't feel, I didn't feel any kind of separateness or diminishment um because of my uh gender i will say that
0: how, how how would you rate like your overall experience attending um radcliffe i know that with uh some black people like honestly me um i went to a pwi and there are times where i wished i had went to an hbcu so i, I wonder, like i i would put the same question to you do you feel like you should have went to a different school or did you enjoy radcliffe
1: well, so, it's and, you know, it, all of these things have, you know, the pluses and the minuses. I would say that my freshman year, my friends at Howard and Spelman were having a much better time than I was. <laughs> and, and I said to my father that I thought I should transfer, and he was not hearing that. Um, and so, I, you know, I still did want to transfer, but I... I when I found something that I loved doing and that was working at the radio station. So I worked at the at WHRB, I worked in the jazz department and then I became director of jazz and I was able to go to jazz clubs for free and I was able to do programs with music that I loved. You know, then I found my um niche. And I really had made some wonderful lifelong friends. Ultimately, it was a very good experience. I remained involved in alumni activities. I'm secretary of my class. Um, I was president of the Radcliffe College Alumni Association. And I found those that community there that was um, coalescing. My One of my college roommates started the Kumba Singers, the gospel choir that is now one of the premier Choirs at Harvard, so you know I think that it is it's possible to carve out a, a zone of comfort at PWIs, but I also truly understand the wonderful things that happen uh, at HBCUs. I mean, my mom is was a Howard grad, and I see my friends who younger friends who went to Spelman uh, and Howard and who are doing fabulous things. So I you know I just think. It was, a, it was rough for me that first year, but once I found something that I was passionate about and where I felt comfortable, it became a positive experience and ultimately has been a lifelong positive experience.
0: So after Radcliffe, um, after you graduated, uh, I, I do believe you worked for a little bit and then you ended up in, I'm sorry, my cat is bothering me. Uh,
1: <laughs> no worries. <laughs>
0: You went to Columbia University for grad school. You got your master's in journalism. And then, of course, in the 80s and 90s, you were just like a force of nature working in TV as like a producer and executive. I mean, I used to work in radio. I actually worked at um, a news radio station in D.C. a few years ago, WNEW, uh, yeah. 99. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of familiar with the industry and how media markets work. Uh, you work in some of the largest ones, obviously, D.C., um, uh, New York. Looking back at the 90s now, you know, we had a different world. We had Living Single, Family Matters, all of that stuff. So it felt very Black for TV sitcoms. But what was the social climate like for a Black executive working in media and development at that time?
1: That You know, that's when I reflect on that, it really was an interesting time. And I think I ended up doing... Journalism. Um, when I was graduating from college in 1974, and then making the decision to go to Columbia's School of Journalism, because at that point Hollywood was really not open for black writers. Um, you know, Spike Lee was starting to do something, and then there, then Cosby came along, and there were black writers who worked for uh, for that show, but. That didn't really seem to, to me to be an option. You know, Ultimately, a, a couple of my college classmates worked at HBO, worked at Sony Pictures, but that did not seem to be a door that was opened. And so I followed that journalism route. And I also, by being a graduate of Columbia in 1976, I benefited from women suing the networks and suing Newsweek because at the networks, women would get hired as secretaries and researchers and young men would get hired as desk assistants and assistant producers. And the women would remain secretaries and researchers and the men would become senior producers and executive producers. So there was clear gender discrimination. Mm -hmm. And so when I graduated from Columbia, in 1976, I was hired in a management training program that was really focused on hiring people of color. And that's how I came through the door. And there, it was really kind of an interesting golden moment where there were a number for the first time, you know, more than one or two Black producers and even some bureau chiefs. So I was part of that wave of women and especially African Americans walking through some of those doors that had just been opened. It was different from the 90s, uh, this, you know, the 70s and the 80s, different from the 90s when entertainment had a different, you know, kind of vibe. But in news, it was, it was a, a moment when there were still there were really only three networks and PBS. So the evening news was the gold standard for mm-hmm. the coverage of news. And it was news was really about serious news. It was, you know, Watergate was part of my, you know, my early experience where you didn't have so much fluff and so much entertainment and you didn't have cable news and a lot of the polarization. That being said, it was still um, a place where the news was not very diverse. What actually ended up getting on the air. Mm-hmm. I remember, um, you know, both having some great mentors and learning my craft and, you know, being able to become experienced and getting promotions. I remember having a couple of racist bosses, you know, through the through the time period. Because, I mean, that that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, but I also remember getting to the point where I had, you know, enough respect, I guess, and enough clout that we were evaluating the images of Black people and of people of color on the air. And I remember doing a study for uh, Rune Arledge, who at the time was the president of the news division. And I looked at several hours and months of the evening news to see when somebody of color was on the air. Mm -hmm. It happened to be during the period of time of the O.J. Simpson trial. So Black people, you know, people of color were not being put on the Sunday shows as experts. Um, if there was a, a flood or a hurricane, the people who were interviewed were almost always white, even if you were in an area where there were people of color. And I remember in my final report, I get, they gave the number of times somebody Black, somebody Latino, and somebody Asian appeared on the evening news. And the one Asian person, Asian American who appeared on the evening news was Judge Alito from the the trial, from the Simpson trial, the only person who got on. And so that was telling. Whenever somebody was on welfare, the B-roll in the tape library was somebody who was Black, even though the majority of people who were receiving public assistance were not. So that was an interesting time to try to speak up. Uh, and try to you know right some wrongs
0: we'll be right back after a quick break and when we return i continue my conversation with emmy award-winning journalist and biographer alelia bundles i'm jason v this is local color stay with us Hey, I'm Jason V. this is Local Color, and before the break, my guest A'Lelia Bundle spoke about working in the media industry and seeing the systemic issues being perpetuated about black people and black stories. As we continue our conversation, A'Lelia talks about the rest of her media career and how the secret of her lineage eventually set her free. So, do you feel like with that like managerial training program and just through um, your your career in in media and journalism, was the concept of media literacy a thing back then?
1: Yeah, I think it was very much there. I mean, I am really fortunate to have gone to Columbia because um, you don't ha- you know you don't have to go to journalism school as you know to be a journalist, but. I had some really good professors, Fred Friendly, who had been president of CBS News, was the broadcast professor, but he also taught a class on uh, journalism and the law and journalism and ethics. And so it was interesting to hear the speakers who were coming in. We learned about Joseph McCarthy and the hearings. And so the parallels to that era on people on the right, you know, misconstruing facts, and weaponizing and demonizing people. I saw what was going on and how people could be manipulated uh, do, even during that period of time. So, in some ways, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, I also was fortunate to have had as my uh, advisor for my master's paper Phyllis Garland, who was the only Black woman on the faculty at that point. Mm-hmm. Phil had worked for Jed and Ebony, her mom had been editor of the Pittsburgh Courier. And it was really Phil who set me on the path to writing about Madam CJ Walker. When I met with her about my topic, I had some cliched ideas. And Phil, at the end of the conversation, said, Your name is Alelia. Do you have any conversation to Madam Walker and Alelia Walker? And I said, Yeah, that's my family, because I wasn't really walking around talking about that. I was really, I wanted to be my own person. Uh, and Phil looked at me and she said, Well, that's what you're going to write your paper about. <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was the beauty of having the only Black woman on the faculty recognizing my unusually spelled name and realizing that it was an important story that needed to be told. So she was, you know, kind of an angel who um, was there to put me on a good path.
0: This is just to kind of indulge me. I, I was born in 1989, so I, I can't remember it fully, but I do remember a time where, Nightly News was with Tom Brokaw and and you worked on the show. So what was that experience like for you?
1: So when I was working for the uh, doing pieces for Nightly News and uh, and the Today Show, I was in the Houston Bureau and the Atlanta Bureau. And, you know, then you would, you know, when you're in those small bureaus, you basically are covering the grain elevator explosions and hurricanes (laughs) and tornadoes, that kind of thing. Uh, and you get, you know, 90 seconds on the evening news. And as the producer, I would work with the camera crew and with the correspondent and we'd scramble and under deadline and, you know, file the story. And at that point, it was through telephone lines. It wasn't now. It's, you know, you do it on the phone, um, on a literally on a handheld phone. Mm-hmm. But it was exhilarating. it was exciting to be a part of that to you know have those high standards one of the two of the biggest stories that I covered I covered the child murders in Atlanta. I was the lead producer for NBC on that and then I covered Jesse Jackson's campaign in 1984 and that was exciting to be a part of that that political coverage to travel all over the place with with Jesse Jackson to watch the crowds and then to go to the convention in San Francisco that summer.
0: Man, that must have been an amazing experience. It was, Um, it was. Nobody can debate or deny the career that you've had. Uh, You know, over three decades in in journalism, you've written several books. You are a multi-hyphenate in every sense of the word, biographer, brand historian, uh, like I said, journalist, executive. You sit on boards, you have prestigious positions. I mean, you are... Yes, black excellence personified and um now as brand historian you are collaborating with SunDial brands to release uh, a new product line the Madam product line which is inspired by your great great grandmother Madam CJ Walker. Um can you tell me about the products that are included in this line and, and what what are some of your favorite products?
1: Sure. Well, you know and I, let me just do some context um in this sense the last thing that I thought I would be doing um, is telling Madam Walker's story every day and being in the hair care business because I started <laughs> telling this, you know, writing. That was journalism was my interest. But because of Phyllis Garland and because of the importance and inspiration of this story, it, it is as it is if I have been brought full circle. It is as if All of those things that I was learning as a journalist, as a producer, and as an executive were in some ways preparing me at this stage in my life to be able to tell Madam Walker's story and to be able to introduce Madam by Madam (laughs) C.J. Walker. It's just kind of stunning to me that this is where I am. And I am forever grateful to Richelieu Dennis, who was the founding CEO of Sundial Brands, uh, born in Liberia, came to the United States to go to college, graduated from Babson College in 92 while the Civil War was going on uh, in Liberia, and so didn't couldn't go back. And he and his mother and another friend launched Shea Moisture, Nubian Heritage. But he had heard about Madam Walker in Liberia and wondered what was happening with the products. And so eventually he acquired the trademark for Madam Walker and then reached out to me and I became involved with his iteration of creating products using the Madam Walker legacy. And then when Rich sold Sundial Brands to Unilever, Kara Sabin uh, became the CEO. And this was right around the beginning of the pandemic. And Kara and I began talking about what what can we really do to lift madam walker's legacy up and make products available to a large number of people. So hence Madam by Madam CJ Walker. And I was, I'm again grateful to Kara and to the team at Sundial for involving me every step of the way. We talked about what, you know, what was Madam Walker's real purpose? What was her real motivation? And her original motivation with her wonderful hair grower and her Madam Walker shampoo was creating healthy scalps. Once you had a healthy scalp, your hair could grow and then you wanted some styling versatility. So during a, the early 1900s, most Americans didn't have indoor plumbing, didn't have electricity, so hygiene was very different. People had a lot of scalp infections. they were going bald. So Madam Walker's wonderful hair grower was to address that. So we wanted to take those um, that DNA, From the original line, healthy scalps, healthy hair, styling versatility, and turn it into what we now call the scalp to strand system. So some of my favorite products, you know, I'm just going to show you this. (laughs) (laughs) Revive and Reset Shampoo. And, you know, everything is under $10 because we wanted it to be accessible to whoever could you know, afford the products and you can buy the whole line because they're 11 products. Another one of my favorites is wonderful hair and scalp balm to oil. And one of the reasons I particularly love this, and you can see, I mean, you won't see this on the radio, but <laughs> when well, you can see it has a kind of a thick consistency right. and it is reminiscent of Madam Walker's original wonderful hair grower. Now, the difference is with a hundred years of research and development and science and technology, the ingredients are slightly, are different. Um, they're healthier in a way, but even though what Madam Walker did was revolutionary. But yeah. what I love is that it's a nice soft ointment. And if your hair is feeling a little frizzy and you need a little something on those ends, you just <laughs> rub it in and it, it allows you to, you know, be able to comb through your hair. And I, I it's also important for me that, We have braid spray, we have scalp serum, we have split-in serum, we have conditioners. So all of those things, no matter what your hair texture is, because we do have that spectrum of hair texture in our community, there's something that should work for you.
0: Based off of your answer, you you kind of... Uh, hinted at what my next question was going to be, was how much of the, the brand's history was referenced in creating not only the products and the ingredients, but the messaging and the brand identity. Um, if, if there's other things that you would like to touch on, please feel free. But it sounds like, again, you being involved in the process as the brand historian, you made sure that um, it was done correctly.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I really did. I really was involved from the early meetings with just concept, what things would be important to revive from the early era to looking at the brainstorming that was going on with an incredible creative team on getting at the origins and what Madam Walker thought was important, the uh, messaging, the packaging the these sort of tur- uh, turquoise and lavender and purple colors, those were some of Madame Walker's favorite colors. So we made sure that was incorporated. Even her signature appears on the packaging. So it was very much about trying to, um, you know, pay tribute to her legacy while also being inspiring and giving people the benefit of this century's worth of research and development.
0: Why did you decide to collaborate with Walmart in terms of distribution over other uh, drugstores?
1: So Walmart actually um, approached Cara. And Angel Beasley is a sister who is an executive at Walmart and who very much wanted to do something uh, in that space. And she deals with a lot of the textured hair products And we know that Madam is a very strong, um, you know, brand. The the name still resonates with people. And so the decision was to go with Walmart and to go with a place where many people shopped. It's in 3,000 stores. We knew there would be a wide distribution and also that we could have a price point that would be affordable.
0: What does the future of hair care look like for uh, Black women?
1: Well, Jason, I have been um in my 70 years. <laughs> I have seen the whole thing, you know, from press and curl to perms to afros to people going back to press and curl to people doing extensions and lace front wigs and locks and twists and all of this. So what I see now is a real versatility and um I I am personally um, comfortable with my natural hair. I don't really like to have chemicals and I'm not putting anything in my hair and I am happy to have my gray. So that's who I am. But I also do love seeing a younger generation just being, you know, free with their styles and feeling one day like they want to. They may want to have it straight one day. They may want to have it blue the next day. (laughs) They may want to twist it the next day and just sort of seeing it as an accessory. Um, Again, I'm always going to be a natural girl. That's just what I love, but I love the fact that people are happy to experiment. I do what's easy because I don't really like to have to think about it too much, but I just, you know, kind of admire all of the styles that people have. So I think the future is what we would love the future to be is that people use Madam by Madam C.J. Walker, but whatever they use that they focus on the health of their hair, uh, the scalp treatments and taking care of their hair so that their hair is in good shape so that when they want to have some styling, they're, they're able to, you know, start with a strong base.
0: Let's say somebody hears this interview when it comes out, and they say, "Oh, I want to go out to Walmart and and buy some Madam by Madam C.J. Walker products." Are they available for purchase now?
1: Oh, absolutely! the 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 products launched in late January, and they are in three thousand Walmart stores, so you can go in those stores. And you also can order them online at walmart.com. So they are absolutely available. And you can, you know, if you, you can go online and do Madam by Mcjw.com and see a website that will describe the products. And, and on Instagram and TikTok, there are lots of uh, demonstrations with people showing you how they're using the different products.
0: What's up next for you? Like you have done so much in your life and in your career. I feel like like me sitting in this position, I'm like, man, I, I wish I, I, I could aspire to be like a quarter uh, uh, of, of of what you have done. So um, yeah, what do wh- 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 you got
1: cooking? So Jason, you know what I have? I am really glad. <laughs> I, I'm really glad that I've had so many opportunities to do a lot of different things. I I really am grateful for my 30-year career in network television news. I've been gone from that for a decade and a half, and I've really used this last decade and a half serving on nonprofit boards. But all of the things that I'm doing are things that I really love. Um, You know, whether it's a March on Washington Film Festival or whether it's being lecturing at Indiana University and, you know, just doing things in the community that I hope are that I'm able to use some of the gifts that I have that I'm able to give back and to share and to help the next generation. The books that I write, I think, are a key part of my legacy because When I was growing up, there were very few books that had anything about women and people of color. Mm
0: -hmm. And so
1: I write the books that I write because I want future generations to have this information, especially now at a time when so many people are trying to once again erase and obliterate our history. So that's really important to me. And being the brand historian for Madam by MCJW is yet another way for me to tell that story everybody who's a woman and and men too but you know everybody who has hair has to use some kind of product and so having madam by mcjw means that every time somebody opens that jar there's a story there and i want to be able to make sure that i'm helping people tell that story and helping inspire people
0: A'Lelia, thank you so much for this opportunity. I really enjoyed the interview and and I hope that you also had a good time as well.
1: Oh, absolutely. I really appreciated it. Um, I I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing it and then seeing you know what happens what your audience thinks. I listened to a few of your podcasts and I really love that you're trying to um, connect people to entrepreneurship and make them aware of it, you know, generational wealth. All of those things are just so. Important for our community. So, you know, thank you very much for being interested.
0: That was multi hyphenate extraordinaire alelia bundles. Check out madam by mcjw.com to learn more about the hair care line inspired by her great-great-grandmother, and follow Alelia on Instagram at alelia bundles. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Local Color. The podcast is hosted and produced by me, Jason V., and distributed by Your Public Studios. New episodes of Local Color drop the second and fourth Wednesday of each month. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to rate five stars and leave a review. Learn more about Local Color at wypr.org.